You're listening to the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the world-leading tech incubator, the DMZ. In this podcast, each episode brings in the movers and shakers of the world to cover leadership mentality, tips for business owners, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's your host, Canada's leading podcaster, CPA and business strategist, Robert Gold, managing partner at Bennett Gold LLP. Once again, from high atop the Movers and Shakers Podcast Center, Toronto, live and in the morning, we're way off to the east. I can see Meek Cove, Nova Scotia. I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner at Bennett Gold LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. Today, we're going to have great fun. Altea Wishloft is with us. Altea is the head of growth, Cobal Care, Inc., Cobal Cares. Com. I'm excited to find out what this is all about. Altea, welcome to the Movers and Shakers podcast. Thanks so much for having me today. This is going to be really interesting. Altea's background is she's become an emerging leader in the startup ecosystem. We hear that about a lot of people, but Altea has a real story. From her time at Panache Ventures to co-founding her own grassroots organization, which helps underrepresented tech founders, Altea has been committed to helping entrepreneurs across country. We talked to so many people with that commitment, which is what's wonderful about Canada. Today, Altea is the head of growth at Cobol. Cobol is an emerging health tech company dedicated to supporting women and families with newborns. What a you unique niche. Altea, tell us about your career thus far and your recent shift to becoming the head of growth at COBOL, because this is new for you, isn't it? It is new. I joined COBOL in early 2021. It's an incredible journey so far. I can tell you more about it as we dive in, but a little bit of a background on my career. So I'm originally from out west. I'm from Vancouver. My family is from a First Nation reserve in northern BC, the Gitsan Nation, and I moved to Toronto in 2016. My education is in mathematics and business from the University of British Columbia. And when I first moved to Toronto, I started off my career in banking, very much a public market corporate job. Thereafter, I started working for a large tech company, which will be familiar to some Torontonians listening, Sidewalk Labs, where I did Indigenous consulting work. Thereafter, I joined the founding team of a venture capital fund called Panache Ventures, where I invested in about 30 pre-seed and seed stage companies across Canada in my three years there. And then in early 2021, I was looking to make the leap to the startup side of things and leverage some of the healthcare knowledge I had built up uh, while I was at Panache Ventures and so joined COBOL, which is a digital health and community platform for new and expectant parents. Tell me a little bit about Panache Ventures, because that was a lot of funds that you placed. Was that fun? Was it good? Did it work out? Just give us a little bit of an elevator story on Panache. Sure, happy to. I joined Panache, like I said, when they were first raising their first fund, which was a $60 million Canadian fund dedicated to investing in Canadian entrepreneurs and teams across the country, exclusively focused at the pre-seed and seed stage, so worked with a lot of accelerators, incubators, um, other early-stage venture capitalists deploying first checks from 250 to 500k. We would often lead pre-seed rounds and participate at the seed stage, and we invested across industries. So it was a really great opportunity for me, having it being the first dip of mine in the venture capital waters. It was great for me to get to know different sectors, the nuances of different industries, as well as work with a number of different portfolio founders. Was it your work at Panache that led you into health tech and COBOL? It was. It absolutely was. So I mentioned, Rob, that I made about 30 investments in my time at Panache alongside my team. And about 10% of those investments were in the healthcare space, be it women's health, telehealth more broadly, family health, et cetera. And so in early 2021, when I 
communicated to my Panache team that I was looking to make the leap to a startup, but hadn't yet decided where. I was kind of canvassing the industries that I found most interesting in my time at Panache, and definitely both professionally and personally had an interest in family tech. And so when evaluating my options, was absolutely taken by Cobol and decided to move there. Let me ask you one more question about Panache, because I am fascinated by the amount of funds that went out. Are there any big hits, big winners that you can brag about from Panache that you are connected to or that we would all know? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I'll speak of some who have recently announced their acquisitions. So Lane, which is a commercial real estate company based in Toronto, recently got acquired um, and joined another large real estate company. Flinks, based out of Montreal, also recently got acquired. And then one other shout out, trying to pick pick one, but it's hard because we had a very large portfolio, still do. Another one that folks might know is Swift, based in Toronto, which does same day, next day logistics. Well, thank you for that. Because again, any entity that's putting out that kind of money to, to entrepreneurial endeavors, I'm all for promoting them. Let's talk about pre-seed funding, because I know that Cobol recently raised a million dollars U.S. pre-seed round close this past summer, and it helped you develop the product further before your actual official launch in Canada. I want to know this. When did you know it was time for Cobol to start seeking funding? Yeah, that's a great question, and it relates to my career journey. When I was looking at various companies to join, I knew I wanted to join an early-stage company. And why is that? It's because that had been my bread and butter for the preceding three years. I understood the business expectations, the growth expectations. I understood the fundraising needs of companies at that stage. And so as compared to you know, perhaps joining a Series B company, I, I felt like I might be a fish out of water there. I, I elected to go early. And so when I joined Cobol, at that point, uh, they had yet to raise any money, but they had been very scrappy. They had already built um, their first beta product with no funding. They had established a minimum valuable team or their early team. And so I came in knowing that as soon as I joined, it was time for this company to, to raise so we could you know, spend a little bit more and hire additional people and build our next version of our product, which will be released in the next two weeks. It's very exciting. And that was the type of company I was looking for, in short, to answer your question, the type of company that was just about to raise their pre-seed. And some indicators, if we've got listeners in the audience who are asking themselves that, Indicators to raise your pre-seed round, perhaps you've already validated demand in the market and you know that you have customers willing to buy and you just need to put fuel on the fire in terms of product development or other um, operational expenses. Maybe you get preempted for your pre-seed round. That's always a great situation to be in where you've got investors knocking on your door, emailing you down, and maybe that's a good indicator that it's time to raise. And maybe it's more market factors. Maybe you're seeing other companies in this space get funded and you think that there's an opportunity to grab, and for that reason, you catapult yourself into the fundraising journey. Let's talk about pre-seed funding again, just for another second, in that I'm not sure that our entrepreneurs that are listening really understand what pre-seed funding is, because often mm. I think that people get confused. They think that pre-seed investors are generally family and friends, but that's not necessarily the case. Why don't you tell us your perspective on what pre-seed funding is and how it should be used once obtained? This is a really great question, and maybe before I answer, I'll say there are nuances by geography, 
big time. What might be a pre-seed round, even in Toronto, might be different from another city in Canada and vastly different than what you would see in the U.S. or the U.K. So let me anchor my response to what I know from the Toronto ecosystem, and I'll speak to my panache days or leverage my panache days to mm-hmm. this. When I worked at Panache, pre-seed rounds tended to be between, call it 500K Canadian to maybe 1.2 million Canadian. Pre-seed has matured since then. Mm-hmm. Now we might see some pre-seed rounds that are to the tune of 1.5 Canadian, for example. That's the general range that I've seen um, in terms of what those companies look like when they're raising. It's typically a two to five person team. They typically have um, maybe an MVP or have validated early market demand. We at Panache had uh, no requirements with regards to revenue for pre-seed companies. So we very much were were willing to take more risks there. So more often they were pre-revenue, but kind of post-product and post-market validation and had some sense of how they would compete. That's the general archetype of a pre-seed company. But at Panache, we had invested in a few more napkin ideas. I'll be very transparent. And then there are other companies who almost leapfrogged pre-seed stage. They said, hey, we're going to bootstrap for a little bit longer. And they ended up jumping right into seed round where they raised a two, $3 million round. They already had revenue flowing and they were able to kind of warrant a more mature fundraising round. What Besides groups like Panache and those types of mm-hmm. funds, where else can a group or an entrepreneurial team go to find seed funding, pre-seed funding? Sorry. Pre-seed, yes, mm-hmm. yes. So you made a comment that most people think that pre-seed is friends and family. What I typically saw at Panache was sometimes founders would have a friends and family round, but sometimes you don't have friends and family who can give you that sort of capital, in which case, you know, you go straight to an institutional round. So sometimes friends and family slash angel, then followed by pre-seed, which tends to be a mix of angels, be it friends and family or others, and institutional. Institutional pre-seed bucket, there are funds like Panache, there are funds like a Garage Capital and 49P, Golden Ventures also participates at pre-stage and a whole host of others, especially in the U.S., that would be active at that stage. And then as you progress through these stages of fundraising, let's call it seed, Series A, Series B, and beyond, it tends to converge in terms of you see perhaps less angel money as a percentage of the total round and higher, a higher percentage of institutional capital. Great information, and I want people not to be afraid to go to family and friends if you have family and friends, because we have to start somewhere. You can't build a company based on credit card debt. That will never work. Let's talk mm-hmm. about indigenous representation in tech, because I think this is going to be pretty interesting. And I know Canada's mm-hmm. garnered a reputation for having a thriving innovation ecosystem. We all talk about it. And it breaks down barriers for many, but not all. And the new term, of course, is BIPOC founders, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, BIPOC. Indigenous entrepreneurs are widely underrepresented. And here's an interesting stat that we found. Only 2.2% of the Canadian tech workforce is Indigenous, 2.2%, which is interesting because in 2016, 4.9% of the Canadian population identified as Indigenous. I think there might Mm -hmm. be a conflict between those two stats. But more importantly, as an Indigenous founder, what do you see as the biggest barriers for Indigenous entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's a great question. If I had to distill it to one biggest barrier, I would say that many Indigenous founders do not align with the definition of Silicon Valley entrepreneurship, meaning that it's not growth or revenue at all costs or the more traditional Silicon Valley definition of entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. That behavior of, okay, you're going to raise pre-seed or a seed stage round of funding and then you have to 3X your company in that time. An Indigenous founder, especially if 
you know, they have other incentives for building their business. They might say, hey, you know what, I'll try to do that, but that's not why I'm here. I have a greater purpose or a greater vocation for what I'm doing. I think that Indigenous founders need to have more sources of capital that recognize those incentives or those purposes. And so that's why I think it's so great. As with like programming we see across accelerators and incubators, like we've got people running the Black Innovation Fellowship or other funding sources that are dedicated towards specific BIPOC groups. I think the same applies to Indigenous founders. You need Indigenous investors with lived experience that are going to understand you more and understand why you're building your business the way you are. And that's the way that we'll grow. Now, I want to ask you if the innovation ecosystem can actually work to eliminate the barriers you just mentioned, but I don't really Mm -hmm. see those as barriers that the innovation ecosystem can knock down. What we're dealing with is individuals, indigenous entrepreneurs, that might have a completely different focus, as you said, than a Silicon Mm -hmm. Valley funder or entrepreneur, or maybe me as an Mm -hmm. accountant making investments in client businesses. I just have a sense from what you just said that an indigenous founder has a different purpose. Can we talk about that for a sec? Yeah, and I don't think it's unique to Indigenous people by any means. I think that there are kind of certain cultural teachings that will lead any entrepreneur to lead the business the way they do. And I don't want to go down this line and and suggest that all Indigenous businesses are social impact businesses. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. We've got incredible high-growth businesses that also happen to have a social purpose. But what I will say is that in my experience as an Indigenous person, there's been a lot of negative connotations and negative relationships with the existing financial system, be it with banks, be it the way that we're supposed to treat our wealth, such that growth and especially someone else asking you to subscribe to their view of capitalism can be a quite a triggering or traumatic ask to certain Indigenous people. And so I think for that reason, although like Growth is one of the biggest things that the VC ecosystem can push. For Indigenous people, their primary motivator may, in fact, be giving back to their community, or it may, in fact, be embedding cultural teachings into their product. Or maybe growth is number one, but I I think that there's a mismatch here in the sense that most of the funders are non-Indigenous people, and so these Indigenous founders are not seeing themselves across the table or maybe perhaps not feeling heard which is where, you know, kind of not to jump right into solutions, but which is why I love seeing the rise of more Indigenous-centric programming and Indigenous-focused funders, um, such as Raven Capital. Well, that's exactly what I want to talk about. I think you hit the nail on the head. But just to go back for a couple of seconds, I think you said something really important, and that is none of the stuff we're talking about should be unique to any class of entrepreneur, indigenous or whomsoever. These are all entrepreneurial issues. However, a lot of entrepreneurs do focus on their community, whatever that community might be. Mm-hmm. And if we can find lenders that can relate to the entrepreneur, whatever that class or whatever their background is, those are far more successful relationships because the cultural barriers, which might be there, tend to disappear if people have the same background or talking the same language. And and to that, I wonder if you can identify or name any programs that you think are doing a good job in supporting Indigenous founders. Great question. So um, there's the Center for Indigenous Innovation and Technology based in Toronto, the Aboriginal Services Office. In uh, also based out of the city, Toronto does great work. 
First Nations Technology Council out of Vancouver, the Fireweed Fellowship, Raven Indigenous Capital, and even actually at my old fund, shout out to Panache, is they were able to involve Indigenous groups, but in a different way. Uh, they sought their own limited partners or investors in the fund itself that came from First Nation trusts in Canada's north. Do you find that support is different province by province across the country for this group of entrepreneurs? I would say that in general, Indigenous support services are more prolific in the West, and that's my own lived experience. Having grown up in Vancouver and then coming to Toronto, it, is, it does feel less accessible here. But I would say in terms of these programs, they are pretty spread across the country. You know, it's kind of unfortunate, your comment, because the vast majority of Indigenous people are in Ontario compared to any other province. So granted, we've got the biggest population base, but still, you would mm-hmm. think that you could point to Ontario-based programs and say they're equal to or better than the programs out West, just because we've got a bigger province and far more capital to raise and to, to fund. That's a sad comment for Ontario. And what I will say is I very much credit the city of Vancouver. I have a friend that used to work there, and they had a distinct team in their city planning group that was just dedicated to Indigenous housing and planning. And you can see it in the way that Vancouver is built, the way that they've create, created cultural spaces throughout the city, throughout our parks, throughout waterways, dedicated towards Indigenous culture. And, you know, absolutely, Toronto is going to get there. But I, I think that's why it's also a lot more visible on our West Coast. Yeah, it it really is. It really is. is there anything else before we move on to my favorite part of the of the interview? Is there anything else you want to add around this topic that we didn't ask? No, this is great. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, so do I. In fact, anything about entrepreneurs, I don't care who the entrepreneur is, that that really gets my juices going. We're so passionate here about entrepreneurs in our firm and at the DMZ. Here's my favorite part, the rapid-fire questions. We have a bunch of questions. I'm going to ask you right off the top of your head, give us a quick answer, okay? These questions come from around the world and across the country. Number one, favorite thing about working at a startup? Fast feedback cycle. Your first real job? Serving brunch. Where? (laughs) Toronto's Danforth. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Favorite city? Glasgow. The greatest piece of advice you've ever received? You're the average of the people you spend the most time with. The worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, I struggle with this one. Worst piece of advice I've ever been given. Maybe you've never been given bad advice. Oh, I absolutely have. (laughs) Um, Play it safe. Okay. Greatest pet peeve? Biggest pet peeve. Um, Oh, uh, not getting to the point. Where did your passion for health tech come from? Being raised by a single mom. What are you watching on Netflix these days? I am not watching Netflix. (laughs) That's a good answer. What industry will be gone in five years? Mm. Half. (laughs) What was that? Pass. 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 This is the hardest question we ever ask. Okay, finally, the best piece of advice you can give that you've never given before. Oh, wow. That I've never given before. That's a hard one. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Gosh. I don't even know where to start. Uh, travel. Travel oh. a lot. Okay, good. I like that. I agree with that. Travel a lot's the only way to learn cultures and see how people react to everything under the sun. Alteo Wishloss, head of growth, Cobal Care, Inc. You can find them at Cobal Cares with an S, CobalCares.com. Alteo, thank you very much for being a guest on the Movers and Shakers podcast. Thanks for having me, Rob. And until next time, I'm Robert Gold, managing partner of Bennett Gold LLP, chart accounts and CPAs in Toronto. If you want to see how we innovate, check us out at BennettGold.ca. See you next time in the morning, everyone, and good night. Meet Cove, Nova Scotia. And that's a wrap for this episode of the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast. 
Make sure you subscribe and follow our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at dmz.ryerson.ca for more tips and tools designed to support your business. Until next time.